This is Dr. Stan May, and you're listening to Drawing from the Well, a weekly podcast by Chronological Bible Teaching Ministries. This is Jonathan Doolin, here once again with Dr. Stan May to explore some of the discovery questions from Tyndale's one-year chronological study Bible. We're in the kingdom era, now we're into Solomon's reign. The first question is this, why does Solomon build the temple on Mount Moriah, and who else besides David had worshipped there? David bought Mount Moriah from Arana, you remember that story? And he determined that the temple would be there. He actually made that statement in, in 1 Chronicles 22.1 that the temple would be built on that mountain. He bought the, the uh, land first, the actual property, and then later it came back and seems to have negotiated the entire area, the entire property of Arana, as to dedicate it to the Lord. And he made one of the great statements that really shapes my thinking about giving, and about worship, because when he bought that, Arana said, let me give it to you. And he said, no. He said, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. And that's probably, Jonathan, is one of the shaping truths of my life, that I do not want to offer to my king something that costs me nothing. I want, I want to offer costly gifts to the king because he's worth it. And David taught me that. But David had bought this land and prepared it. But long before David, on another day, Abraham went up to that mountain and took his son Isaac. And there God provided a ram in his stead. And on that mountain, on the mountain it was called Jehovah Jireh, the Lord. It will be provided. The Lord was seen. And it's the picture of the one who would come that would be the full sacrifice, the final sacrifice. Amen. Amen. Next, why does Solomon say that foreigners could pray toward the temple? And how does Solomon describe true repentance in his prayer? I love this prayer. Solomon takes the time to teach us a great deal of theology. He pours out truth. And in the middle of it, he makes an amazing statement. As you know, Israel was God's covenant people. They had a covenant relationship with God. They could pray in the name of the Lord, and they could come to God in a special relationship a relationship that the nations did not have with God. But Solomon prayed to the Lord for the foreigners, and he said this. He said, when they've heard how great your name is and how powerful you are, and they come to this temple and pray, then hear their prayer. And he said this, do, Lord, grant their prayer so that all the people of the earth will come to know and fear you. What Solomon demonstrates is God's heart for the nations in the Old Testament. He's not just a missionary God in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God had a heart for the nations, for those foreigners who would come to him. And Israel was a come-and-see religion more than a go-and-tell. But when they came to see how great God was, then they would pray and God would hear their prayer. When Solomon finishes this prayer, though, he begins to unpack the truth about repentance. And he talks about what happens when the people go astray? He says, there's no one on earth who does not sin. But when they sin and they're carried captive in another land, he said this, when they turn to you in repentance, and then he takes the time to describe what are, I believe are the true steps of true repentance. He says there's heart confession of sin, prayer toward God, turning to God in heart 
and soul, with all our heart and with all our soul. Because true repentance, as we both know, is always Godward first. It is a turning to God and acknowledging of that I, I have missed the mark, that it is I who is the problem. You know, like, like Isaiah says later, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. And Solomon says that real repentance is the acknowledgement of that and a turning back to God with our heart, with our soul, and prayer toward him. Yeah, because a lot of people, when they talk about repentance, they talk about a, a turning, which is appropriate, as you've said, but it, but it has to be turning toward God because if you just turn from doing things that everyone knows is wrong to doing things that, that are good or commendable, you could just make yourself to a Pharisee, which Jesus condemns more than, more than the other sinners. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Next, what might God use to get the attention of his people and cause them to pray and seek his face? And what does this tell us about God's care for his people? I wrote this question because the most famous verse on revival is in this passage. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. But the New Living Translation rightly begins by saying, then if my people, because this verse is not a standalone word. It is actually a follow-up to verse 13, where in verse 13, God says, if I shut up heaven so that there is no rain, or if I send the grasshoppers to devour the crops, or if I send a plague upon the land, if my people... I believe that Elijah prayed this verse. I believe that he found this verse, and as he began to pray for revival, the Lord said the cost of revival will be shutting the heavens Mm. so that I can then open them when my people turn back to me. And what I believe, Jonathan, and I, I think this is so important for all of us to understand, God has means to get our attention. And when God sends those means, the answer is not to complain to him, but to cry out to him, to turn back to him in repentance. He uses means. They may seem harsh, Mm. but they may be what it takes to get our attention to turn our hearts back to God. Amen. There's a hymn that says, Who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore of the rock of Christ? And it's it's God himself who sends those waves, or at least allows them. Amen. Uh, Next. What blessing does Solomon bestow on the nations, and how do his actions fulfill God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3? When God calls Abram, he tells him that if if you'll just obey this, I'll make you a blessing, and I will bless you, and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The first installment of that blessing, I believe, takes place when Joseph feeds all the nations. They're in a famine in Egypt, Death is impending because there's no food all over the world. And yet the nations who come to Joseph get food. And so God blesses the nations through Abram's child or great-grandchild, I guess. One of others, one others of his great-great-great-great-grandchildren, Solomon, blesses the nations. Why? Because the Bible says in, in 2 Chronicles 9.23 that kings from every nation come to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Well, you know they didn't just come for a sermon. They came, sat at his feet, they brought their scribes, they recorded this, they wrote it down, and they took it back. One scholar has argued that because all the wisdom traditions of the world 
come up in about the 700 B.C. era, that most of them are the percolated wisdom of Solomon as they've taken it back to their nations, taught it to their people. It's been uh, inscribed by their scribes and then passed on, and pretty soon it becomes the new wisdom tradition. For example, even Confucius. The silver rule in Confucius is whatever you don't want men to do to you, don't do to them. Well, it's not surprising that we see something like that that comes out of perhaps the influence of Solomon's wisdom, blessing the nations. Mm. Amen. Amen. Next, why does the Queen of Sheba praise Solomon's God, and what does her praise teach about the way God desires to use our lives? Well, the Queen of Sheba comes up, and uh, there are those who argue that Sheba's Yemen or someplace in Africa, nobody knows exactly, but she comes up and she experiences in her, in her visit with Solomon advancements. I mean, the, the, the text describes specific advancements, the clothing that Solomon's uh, servants wore, the beauty of the temple, and she just experiences advancements that she's not seen in any other kingdom. Mm. But she also experiences insights that she's never heard. She has all of her hard questions, the text says, and she brings them all to Solomon, and he's able to answer every one of them. She is blown away, if we'll use a modern expression, by uh, incredible design and beauty and wisdom surpassing anything she's ever experienced. In the same way, Jonathan, as we seek to live for the glory of God, our lives ought to reflect God's design, God's order, God's wisdom, and God's beauty in such a way that people will watch us and say, what's different about you? Amen. Amen. Last question. How does God invite people to partake of his wisdom, and how does his wisdom save us? Like the Psalms, Proverbs begins with two ways of walking. You know, there's the way of wisdom and the way of the fool. He says in verse 7, uh, at, the, at the end of the introduction to the book, he says, um, he says the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so there are the two ways of walking presented right at the beginning. Then he begins to introduce us to wisdom and personifies wisdom. And wisdom reminds us of an, an evangelist. Wisdom stands out on the street corner crying out to the people, calling out to the fools, to the simples, saying, turn, warning of destruction. And so wisdom sounds like an evangelist, drawing people saying, come to me. I will give you correction from evil. I will give you protection in this life. If you will listen to me, you will experience blessing. So she calls, as it were, for those to turn to her in repentance, listen to God's word, let the Holy Spirit work in their lives by, through the wisdom that God gives. And then there's the promise of peace from harms. Turning in repentance to God, fleeing from destruction to come, and submitting to God to hear His wisdom, especially since Jesus is God's wisdom, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.30, that Jesus has made wisdom of God to us, depicts true salvation. In the same way that believers in the Old Testament were enjoined to turn to God, listen to his word, submit to him. So we today know that true salvation comes when people turn to God, mm. listen to his word, 
be convicted of their sin, look to Jesus and trust in him and flee this world. Thank you, Dr. May. Thanks for joining us. Listen in each week with CBT as we draw from the well of the word to answer questions from the weekly reading of the One Year Chronological Study Bible.